is in both services as well. So we're keeping her busy and grateful. Um, just want to say a, a quick word um, to what Pastor Chris was saying earlier about um, about Frida. Uh, Frida is a woman that I, I got to know a little bit over recent years who has been at Central longer than most of us have been alive. Um, and she's been uh, incredibly faithful. She, she is a woman who... Um, who knew what it meant to be a part of a church for keeps. Central went through some really hard times in their history and and Frida walked through that with them and prayed through that with them and continued to be a part of this place and has has really watched it flourish as well in other times and and we would say like now. Um, I really believe that the faithfulness of a woman like her who's given herself to prayer, if, if you know her well, you just know that about her. She's one of those godly people who's given herself to prayer. And so I believe that as we see fruit in this place, it's certainly God's doing and it's all his grace. But he calls his faithful people to be people of prayer. And so we really thank Frida for her faithfulness over the years and the impact I know that she's had. I think just on a personal level, I'm looking at the place in the foyer where we would often meet and she would grab my hand and look me in the eyes and I say, I pray for you every day. I pray for this church every day. I love this church. I love that you're here. Um, And that's just been really personally uh, uh, meaningful to me. I know many of you can say the same. So so there's this thing that happens that Chris touched on for us as, as someone of real significance around here passes away. Is We are really happy for her, really glad. Her prayer has been answered. Um, the rest of us, though, there's real loss. So if, if I give you all an encouragement that I know Frida would be proud of, it would be this. Um, don't be convinced that we have one less godly saint in this church praying over this place. Um, let a little bit of Frida rub off on you and endeavor today, if you don't regularly, to be a man, to be a woman of prayer over your church family, uh, over your pastors, over your own families, and just follow that legacy through. She has modeled that so well for us, and I feel personally so grateful to have uh, spent a little bit of time with her. So I, I wanted to speak to that, that and uh, of course, uh, it's been a privilege to spend time with her family in recent days. and and minister to them and hear more stories about her uh, godly woman. Okay, transition. We are concluding a, a, a book in the Old Testament called Hosea. I will give you five minutes to find it, and I will read from it at that point. Uh, it comes right after Daniel. It's the first of the 12 minor prophets. Um, minor in the sense that just pretty short and succinct, not less significant. Um, so it's not an insult that it's called one of the minor prophets. Um, he just has a way of saying things quickly, and I'm trying to learn from him. Um, and so we're concluding this book. We have spent the last number of weeks walking through Hosea, and if you've been here, you'll recognize that's no easy task. I, I'm really grateful for these, these prophet books in the Old Testament because these, these were men that really didn't mince words. They just sort of told it like it is. And isn't that refreshing from time to time? Just like, tell it to me straight. I just need to know what's going on. And these, these, these prophets would just sort of say it like it is. In this book of Hosea, um, there's really a number of, of illustrations that are given for what Israel were like. And, in, and, and, and so we see that they're actually 
They're judgments. But at the, at the same time, what we've been able to discover in these words of judgment through the prophet, God is also revealing these portraits of his grace. He's revealing how merciful a God he is. And we get to see that in clear focus as this book concludes and we look at its final chapter this morning. If you have a bulletin, why don't you uh, turn to it? I've got an outline here for you. I'm going easy, easy for you, easy on you this summer. Um, all one word, all ending with I-O-N. Okay, here we go. First, confession, verses 1 to 3. Second, compassion, the compassion of God, verses 4 to 7. Third, affection, that's in verse 8. We'll get to that. And lastly, conclusion, there's sort of a succinct final verse to this that really summarizes and concludes. I spend more time than you can imagine on things like that. But there you go. So why don't we pray together and uh, we'll get into... uh, the conclusion of this series. God, thank you so much for your word. I'm profoundly grateful for it as a preacher. Um, The main reason being, Lord, is that I know I have very little to say of value. I'm so grateful, Lord, that your word is opened up for us, that we can come to it. And so, Lord, at this church, and my prayer is that we're people of the word, I'm not preaching opinion this morning. Keep me from that, Lord, I pray. I want to preach your truth from your very book. Your words are written down for us to see, Lord. May we proclaim those. God, I pray that as you speak, since they are your words, where it's hard, I pray you'd soften our hearts and we'd be able to to hear it and receive it. And Lord, where we maybe are hardened, Lord, may we hear the mercy, may we hear the love, may we hear the pursuit that is in this word as well. So God, I pray you would meet us and you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with this first verse. We're going to look at confession here. and Just as we do, this opening verse in Hosea chapter 14 says, Return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The very first word is a really significant word, this word return, return to the Lord. Can we just talk about where we've been? The first three chapters of Hosea said this, you're an adulterer to me. That's what God is saying. He says to Hosea, go and marry a wife of adultery. It's going to be imagery of how you are to me. You've cheated on me. I'm I'm like your husband. I'm your God. I'm like your husband. And you've gone after others. You've cheated on me. He starts by saying, you're an adulterer. It doesn't get much better. He goes on to say, and you've had children of adultery. You've had these illegitimate children. Now, um, I was preaching Hosea chapter 1, and our, our neighbor friends of Emily and I, they, they came to church for the, here for the first time as I preached Hosea 1, and I, I, I remember saying the phrase, just so we're all aware, we're not Hosea in the story, we're the whore. And by God's grace, she came, they came back and... <laughs> Uh, (laughs) what is this church right again the beauty of no mincing words in the prophets we we love to soften everything god is saying hosea marry gomer she's going to cheat on you and just so the nation knows it's a picture of how you treat me and we have to ask the question is that how we treat god that's where we started in hosea chapter one and then you're, you have illegitimate children of whoredom, it says in Hosea chapter 1, because you haven't been tied to me, you've been tied to another. You've broken your covenant with me and you've 
literally tied yourself to another. And so you've had children of whoredom. You've had these illegitimate kids. So we're talking about adultery. We're talking about illegitimacy. And then in the last number of chapters, chapters 11 to 14, the the really clear image of, of, of the latter part of Hosea is about a wayward child. It's about a rebellious kid who causes such strife and such heartache for their father. These are the pictures of how we are to see um, ourselves in, in light of God. And so it's really refreshing, it's really encouraging, and it's full of grace that we see the very first word of Romans cha- or Hosea chapter 14 say, return. Return to the Lord. Come. Come back. I made the mistake of sitting with Eldon just before he preached, and I gave him a killer illustration, which I could have used here. <laughs> I'm just going to repeat it really quickly here. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, talked about a dad who was waiting for his teenage daughter to return home. And she was rebelling and she was leaving and he would just wait and he was filled with anger as he waited and stared at this plate glass window waiting for her to come home. But that quickly turned into the fact that he he just became a lovesick father desiring that his daughter would just walk through the door. And when she did, not in the evening, but in the early hours of the morning, there he was, this father that just wanted her back, embraced her. That's what you and I need to hear as we read Hosea chapter 14, in light of the adultery, in light of the illegitimacy, in light of the rebellion. What's the word that God says? Return, come on home. I want to embrace you not as a stern monarch, but as a lovesick father who wants to embrace you and welcome you home. That's the, very, that's the word that we need to hear. No one is exempt from that kind of a call from God to return. If you think your sin is so great, you're wrong. There's some other prophetic books and they get into more detail as well. If you think that you're beyond saving, you're wrong. There is a word that comes after the judgment in Hosea that says, come on home, return to your father, return to me. That's the heart of God for you and for me. And then he gives you the way by which we can do so. Look at verses two and three. Take with you words and return to the Lord. I love this. We're going to unpack this together. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Verse 3, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. Karen, here's a great verse. In you the orphan finds mercy. You work with literal orphans. Um, I love that ministry. There's this broader sense that we all need to see in the context of Hosea that that's every one of us. Why should Christians be on the forefront globally in orphan care? Because every one of us knows what it's like to need our loving Heavenly Father to be without Him. And when He embraces us and accepts us in illegitimate as we are, we become His. And that is the gospel. And so it's so beautiful when we can work it out in really uh, practical and clear ways that picture that gospel. It's incredible. Repentance is essential. We need to see it in these verses. Essential to Hosea's theology. It's the essence of knowing God. Um, It's at the essence of knowing God since restoration isn't possible without repentance. Sin stands in opposition to to repentance. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Hosea um, 
chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 4. The reason that, that Hosea is saying, take with you words, is, is, is not so we just simply recite the right prayer and then we're good, but that it come from a heart. He's getting at the heart, and we'll take a look at that. We see the opposite taking place in Hosea chapter 5, verse 4. It says this about Israel, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. Whoredom is they're cheating. They're cheating on God with another. They're looking to the Baals, right? They're, they're literally involved in Baal worship at this time. Um, and so their deeds don't permit them to return to God. They're, they're locked in with another lover. And so literally what we see in chapter 5 verse 4 is their sin prevents them from repenting. They are so enamored by what their lives are filled with that they're not seeing God for who he is. If you turn to chapter 7, verse 10, we see a different context. It says the pride of Israel in this context, the pride of Israel, chapter 7, verse 10, testifies to his face, yet they do not return to the Lord their God nor seek him for all of this. In chapter 7, verse 10, it's, they simply refuse to repent. Their, their pride gets in the way and they refuse to do so. So here in chapter 14, as Hosea concludes, he wants to help his people return to God and do so rightly. He wants to get their pride out of the way. He wants to get their idols out of the way. And he comes to, he, he's saying, bring with you words like these. So let's, let's take a look at those in a moment. But I think A.W. Tozer's words uh, in the 20th century, uh, Tozer's words are really helpful to us when he said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions, it hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. We're not all that different than Israel, my friends. Many of us have this belief that God is just too kind to punish sinners. Many of us have this belief that if we just feel bad about what we've done, we don't need to bring God words of repentance. We simply just feel bad about it, and then we're good with him. Hosea wants to make it really clear, no. If you have sinned, if you have walked from God, if you um, literally like, give yourself to the worship of idols, if you look to something else for your salvation, there is one avenue by which you can return to God with arms wide open. It reminds me of earlier this week, um, our lead team got together and we met at, at one of the lead team members' houses, had a beautiful view on the mountain overlooking Chilliwack. And here's what I knew. Um, I knew that it, uh, it was going to be a, a beautiful view. We were going to sit out on the patio, have a meal together. It was going to be delicious food. And I was really looking forward to spending time with, with our lead team, just really godly people in this place. All of those things I knew. I just had to get to the right spot. So I punched in the directions, and then my phone talked to me. The rest told me how to get there. And I, when I arrived, I, everything was laid out. I didn't have to do a thing. So what we need to understand here is that this is what repentance is. Is God gracious? Yes. Is he loving? Yes. Can we rely on his mercy? Yes. The way to receive it, God says, repentance. The way to receive it throughout the scriptures we see, we see it in Hosea, we see it in Romans, we see Jesus say it out of his mouth. We see, this is the message of the scriptures. You want to know Jesus, you want to receive repentance, you want to heap your, your, your sinful self on his grace? Great. Follow the route. 
punch in the coordinates, get yourself there. His grace, his open arms are waiting for you. Our role is to get there the right way. And so Hosea is helping us take with you words. And then he says them. Take away all iniquity. It's a request that God would forgive sin and accept what is good. Remind you, Jesus did the same thing. When you pray, pray like this. And he gives the Lord's Prayer. And later on in the prayer, it's, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It goes on to say, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus is mapping out the way we ought to pray, not in some sort of recited way, but that we are to come with humble hearts via repentance and pray through confession. A prayer of repentance isn't simply repeated words. We don't just say Hosea's words or say the words Jesus tells us to say, but it's about coming before God with sincere repentance. We see in these two verses um, the intent here. The prayer has three parts. Firstly, I'll I'll come back to this. I'll say it quickly first. First, uh, the prayer has an appeal for forgiveness. Secondly, it has a renunciation, a rejection of false faith. And thirdly, it's an appeal to the character of God. This prayer that we are to bring, it's a liturgy, really, right? It's it's sort of a a model of our worship. It's got structure to it, and this prayer of repentance has that. It's an appeal for forgiveness so that praises would be acceptable to God. There's sincerity being the key here. Look at the words, take all iniquity, accept what is good. It means with now sincere prayer, dependence on God, and no longer tainted by Baalism, right? It's, It's... this prayer is sincere, except what is good, a true and contrite, like sincere heart. A prayer for God to, uh, and then it goes on to say, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips, that we will pay, uh, also it's been interpreted, with the fruit of our lips. This means a prayer for God to accept words as worthy praise and sacrifice, sincere words. So that's an appeal for forgiveness. The second part of the prayer is a renunciation of false faith. Look at what they say in verse 3. Assyria shall not save us. And we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. It's this reliance on other things that they had. But they will renounce those, that false faith and say, God, you alone save. And thirdly, it's an appeal to the character of God where it says, in you the orphan finds mercy. That's in you, God. That's your character. That's who you are. That's the place where we find the mercy of God. All of those things encompassed in this prayer of repentance. That's true repentance. I'm going to tell you a story about insincere repentance and it's easy to throw my son under the bus. So um, earlier this week, uh, we were having some challenges in the Sean's household with, uh, with one of our sons. It happens regularly. might have something to do with the parenting. I don't know. I don't know. But it was just one of those days uh, where just, it was just horrible. It was just getting progressively worse. And it got to the point where, where he was saying um, rude things to his mom. He wasn't listening. And as I sent him to his room, he stomped up every single stair and for some reason was wearing his shoes, which he also wasn't supposed to be. It's just an, a plethora of items there for me to review with him. So I let him go up to his room and a little while later went up and sat beside him and said, look, you, need, you, need, you can come out of this room when you're ready to make it right. So, you know, you need to say sorry to your mom and tell her what you're sorry for. I, I sound really calm and collected right here. <laughs> what you need to do? Anyway, no. It, it was a, a heated moment. I was breathing, uh, everything. Look, when you're ready, come on down and, and make it right with your mom. I go downstairs. Ten seconds later, 
Clearly, he had really thought it through. Ten seconds later, he stomps down the stairs, and halfway down the stairs says, Sorry! (laughs) I'm just trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. Okay, okay, sorry for what? Silence. Why are you saying sorry? And then he comes out with it. Because I want to come back downstairs and keep playing. So can we just... Right, you're just... just Like... Sometimes telling the stories of a little child are really helpful to me. (laughs) I can step back and be like, wow, I'm actually a lot like that with God. (laughs) I I, I want his blessings. I want it all to go well. I want his mercy. I want his grace. I want to live in the abundance of life that he offers. Yeah, sorry for doing that thing, God. My repentance is literally the kind of like, I'm just tossing it out. I want what you can give me. instead of wanting to truly make it right with God. Can I tell you something I've been learning over the last couple of years? And um, it's it's really profound to me. uh, And as I see my my brother Ron here this morning, he's a a pastor and friend who has helped me to learn this, and I'm grateful. Um, It's something I'm continuing to learn, and it's learning the difference between regret, remorse, and repentance. I have lived good portions of my life, and it's still easy to go there, where I regret stuff, or I'm remorseful about stuff, but I'm not truly repentant about my stuff. Right? Regret most simply is just saying, I wish I hadn't done that, or why did I do that? And it nags at us, and it frustrates us, and we carry that. Remorse is is, is really just deeper regret. It's deeper, and it usually has um, consequences attached to it. That thing that we regret had consequences that hurt people in our lives, or the kinds of consequences that changed the circumstances for me. Things don't go as well for me now. There's circumstances that have changed because of my doing that aren't pleasant, like And we feel remorse sometimes over that. So there's regret and remorse. Here's the thing about repentance that Hosea wanted Israel to learn. And church, I want us to just get this really clearly of what we're talking about when we talk about repentance and not just regret or guilt or remorse. Repentance is the belief that a behavior is wrong and must be stopped. Do you hear the difference between, ah, I shouldn't have done that. And this was wrong. And I need to repent of that. I need to ask for God's grace for that. I need to confess that. Such difference. Repentance motivates us to change our behavior. And and repentance is the belief that a behavior is wrong and must be stopped. And God gives us the courage and gives us the, the ability to do that. Look at 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly grief does that. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces debt, or debt, death, and keeps us in our debt. Hey, there you go. Regret and remorse can lead to shame and guilt and can eat away at you, but repentance leads to confessing our sin, laying it at the cross, and asking the Holy Spirit to bring change in us. See, here's, here's, the, here's the direction, here's the, 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 here are the directions to repentance. It's taking responsibility for our sinful actions and repenting of them. And it leads us to 
leave guilt and shame behind. So look, we don't harp on sin here to make anybody feel bad. We say we're sinners, but then we harp on grace here so that we can know that we can be forgiven. And when we are, we actually leave guilt and shame behind. But it's only via repentance. So what we preach here is repentance and faith, because that's what we see throughout the scriptures. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. Sincerely with your heart, put your trust in Jesus and go to him. And when you do, and lay your burdens down at the foot of the cross, you bear them no more, and you walk away scot-free. You walk away purified. You walk away free and clean. It's incredible. And so I want you to hear the great message to a bunch of sinners in the book of Hosea. Return to a God who lovingly embraces you and return with words of repentance from your heart. That's what he said so far. Now there's this really interesting word uh, in, in verse 3 where it talks about nothing else saving. We won't trust in Assyria. Assyria can't save us and we will not ride horses, it says. I love that. It's very strange, kind of interesting. We won't ride horses. What's going on here? If you have a Bible, turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. This is a fascinating story. I, I really love it and was enjoying reading it this week. In Chronicles chapter 20, let me just tell you this story and then I'll, I'll, I'll relay how, how it connects here. In... Um, in Chronicles chapter 20, we see a king named Jehoshaphat who's trying to bring reform to Israel. In fact, is he's reforming this, this sinful nation and trying to bring them back to uh, faithfulness to God. And literally, just as he does, here's what happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. This is about Jehoshaphat. I love that Jehoshaphat's name has fat in it, but it's P.H. fat. Like, I think that only became cool in like the late 90s. Like, Jehoshaphat is like, way ahead of his time. He's rocking the PH in it. So here we go, King Jehoshaphat. Many of you are very confused and wondering about me. Anyways, Second Chronicles chapter 20. Look at what happens as he's bringing reform to this nation because he's trying to glorify God as their king. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Meunites. The Mennonites aren't there, right? Conscientious objectors. We're not having any part of this. And with them, some of the Meunites and, uh, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Verse 2, some men came and told Jehoshaphat, even worse news, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazantamar, that is, in Gedi. Here's what's going on. Um, Jehoshaphat's trying to be faithful, and here's what he gets news of. The Moabites and Ammonites lived east of the Dead Sea and are coming at them. The Meunites are equated with the people of Mount Seir on the southern border of Judah and are coming at them. Engedi lies on the midpoint of the Dead Sea on the western shore and are coming at them. That's what Jehoshaphat is facing as he's trying to be faithful to God. Listen to this prayer he prays to God in chapter 20, verse 12. He says this, he states it like it is, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. Fair enough, but listen to what he says. But our eyes are on you. We are being surrounded by nations that are all coming at us. We don't have the power. We don't know what to do. But God, our eyes are on you. And then in chapter 20, uh, verse 20, he says, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing 
to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. The nations are coming at them. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Here's the tactic that Jehoshaphat takes. He takes the men dressed in holy attire, likely the Levitical priests, and sends them in front of everybody singing. Here's their, here's their military tactic. Okay, so if we are surrounded right now, Central, this would be the equivalent, is you're sending your pastors out in front of you in our, I guess, casual attire, uh, um, singing. That's how we're going to come at these people. And God steps in and routes these nations. Their eyes were on God, and God won the battle. So I find it really, really helpful to, for us to see that going on in Hosea chapter 14, they say, A, we don't, uh, Assyria shall not save us, and we will not ride on horses. We're not going to use the military plans of nations around us. We're not going to just try with our own hands yet again, or dependence on other nations to be free. We're going to depend solely on you. That's what Jesus has done for us, by the way. Surrounded, powerless, understanding at at some point in time that dependence on our own hands and tactics to defeat Satan's sin and death just doesn't work. That we're actually so surrounded and so in need that what we need to do is not simply have some great philosophy of our day or take on some sort of tactic or some other movement, but what we need to do is simply put all of our trust in Jesus. Colossians 2.14 says what Jesus did for us, something that we cannot do. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As we repent and believe in Jesus, he wins the battle. It's incredible. True repentance leads to Jesus winning the battle that seems impossible and is impossible without him. So verses 1 to 3 are telling us to return and bring words and a heart of repentance and receive the grace of Jesus Christ who says, return home, come to me. Secondly, very quickly, we see the compassion of God. Um, Hosea is speaking the words in verses 1 to 3. We, we sort of becomes first person from God in verses 4 to 7 where he says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Picture uncultivated earth with nothing growing. God steps in and says, illustration after illustration of the kind of abundance and blessing that he will provide. In the Bible, do refers to refreshing influences of the Holy Spirit ministering grace and truth to the soul. He begins by bringing that moisture, cultivating the earth, watering and gardening it and making it a fruit-producing ground. These verses are full of illustrations of God's joy in his people, how beautiful and precious they are, we are, to him. The illustrations are a way for God to describe the abundance that he will cause for us. 
Sin robs us of the abundant life that God intends for us, but when we repent of sin and return to God, he produces abundance. His promises are sitting in these verses. He has great compassion on his people. Jesus did the same thing in John chapter 2, the very first recorded miracle of Jesus. We see that wine ran out at a a party, at a wedding, and Jesus turns water into wine, but he turns so much water into wine, it's so abundant, and this, this, this wine that he has produced is far better than the previous wine. It's a picture of what life in Jesus is like. It's abundant and full and rich. It's, he offers abundant life, and it's beautiful. Adulterous, illegitimate, rebellious people can repent Return to God, and God desires to pour out his abundant life-producing grace in our lives. Thirdly, verse 8, we see this. O Ephraim, another word for Israel, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Um, An evergreen cypress is... That his, his hearers would have understood that it is, it's full of life and strength. And from me comes your fruit is reminiscent of what Jesus proclaimed when he said in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. To be fruit producing people, we are attached, attached to the branch, we are attached to the vine. And that is where our life and abundance comes from. We see also this declaration that God says, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answered and look after you. Nothing else provides. It's a call to renounce idols. If it's God that we want, we must renounce our idols completely. When we talk about idols around here, what we mean is this, not simply graven images, but we mean anything that's gripped your heart in such a way that it's got that primary spot that you look to it for fulfillment, you look to it for completion, or you look to it for salvation. If it's anything other than Jesus, it's an idol in your life. And this is a call to Israel, and it's a call to us to have no other gods. What does God have to do with idols? It's only him who provides for us. What will cure us from the idols in our lives? Another idol or sheer willpower? Apart from Christ, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We can do nothing. The only thing that will do it is an affection greater than our affections for our idols. Encountering Jesus in all his glory and grace. Then we see idols not only as useless, but as detestable, hated, and even over time forgotten. What we can come to to do in Jesus is he can replace the idols of our hearts, because he's far greater. And then we begin to detest and even forget these things that had once consumed our lives. Is there something consuming your life that's not Jesus? I want you to hear this word this morning. Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish preacher and professor, said, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than by building ourselves on our most holy faith. The best way to keep ourselves from loving the world is by having the love of Jesus in our hearts so fully. And the way to keep Jesus' love in our hearts is to continue to cultivate that and believe that. The truth, light, and beauty of the gospel outshines everything else. Good things, though idols, are put in their rightful place, and really corrupt, sinful idols get seen for what they truly are and become disdained. 
See, it's not enough to understand the worthlessness of the things of this world. What is needed is to value the worth of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. It's not enough to point our fingers at things and say they're worthless or they're bad. What's needed is to value the worth of Jesus and look to him and say he is the great good. Love of the world and love of Jesus are diametrically opposed to one another. It's not enough to point out that the things of this world will never ultimately satisfy, but we must hold out the gospel and declare that it does. So when we speak into people's lives around us and we see that there's things that that, that they shouldn't be trusting in for fulfillment, it's an opportunity to speak into their lives something that truly can. It's an entrance point for the gospel. That other things won't satisfy, but holding up the gospel and declaring that it does. See, Uh, Thomas Chalmers said this in his famous sermon, a new affection is more successful in replacing an old affection than simply trying to end it without replacing it with something better. He said, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the mere force of mental determination. Reason and willpower are not enough. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, may be replaced. The one way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. I love that. Right? If there's something that's got a place in your heart that isn't Jesus, give that heart to Jesus. We need to shine the light of the gospel, who Jesus is and all he has done and is doing in our own hearts and to those around us. And as we see Jesus for who he truly is, the lesser things we cling to um, for meaning, fulfillment, purpose, and salvation will be replaced. I want to conclude with a word from uh, another 18th century pastor. I love this. It's not really a sermon, and it's not really a poem. And so it's sort of like an 18th century blog post, I think, because it's just four paragraphs of something. I'm a product of my culture. Here's, here's uh, John Fawcett's 18th century blog post. I think that this will uh, preach to your heart this morning as we conclude. If Christ is too, truly precious to us, we shall prefer him above every other object. He will have the chief place in our affections. The love which a Christian has to his Savior penetrates and possesses his heart. This distinguishes it from the pretended love of hypocrites, which is only in word or in some external actions, while their hearts are full of sinful self-love, so that it may be said of them, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We may possibly delight in some objects of an inferior nature as they contribute to our health, our ease, or our comfort. Our homes, our food, and our other temporal enjoyments are dear to us because they minister to our comfort and convenience in the present life. But true love for Christ does not allow any other object to hold the chief place in the heart. This chief place is for Jesus, whom we ought to love with supreme ardor, with supreme passion. The choicest affections of our souls ought to be supremely fixed upon him. As it is impossible for any man to love an unknown object, so it cannot be expected that Christ should be supremely precious unto us unless we know him to be excellent and desirable beyond whatever may be compared with him. 
We shall not esteem him above all things if we have not elevated views of his transcendent worth. Our esteem of him rises in proportion to the knowledge we have of him. Godly men, therefore, ardently, passionately desire to increase in the knowledge of him that their affections may be more intensely fixed upon him. If Christ is truly precious to us, we shall be induced to devote our souls and our bodies, our talents, our abilities, and our faculties as a living sacrifice to him. To contemplate his adorable perfections will be our highest joy. We shall be ready to obey him in opposition to all the threats and the solicitations of men. We shall rely upon him, though all outward appearances seem to be against us. We shall rejoice in him, though we have nothing else to comfort us. If we enjoy health and plenty, friends and reputation, the Lord is still the object of our earnest desires and our supreme delight. Amen? Amen. As we conclude... And look at the concluding verses of verse 9. I want you to hear what this book has been speaking to us the last number of weeks. Hosea concludes it this way. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. God is calling his people to have no other gods. God is calling his people to repentance and he's calling the most wretched of people to repentance. He's shown us that in this book. He's calling us all by his grace to come to faith in him through repentance. If you have never come to to Jesus as Savior and Lord, confess your sin and throw yourself on his extravagant mercy. I plead with you. If you know Jesus, live for him. Don't rob God and yourself with dabbling, splitting allegiances and idolatry. Live for Jesus. Live all in for Jesus. Fill your heart with the affections of Jesus. I praise God that he makes a way, the cross, for me to repent and fall in his grace over and over and over again. I praise God for texts of scripture like this that say, I know you've cheated and I know you've rebelled. Let's talk about it. Return. I love you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your rich, rich word. Again, I'm so um, encouraged by these texts of scripture that we can open in the middle of the Old Testament and just be profoundly convicted by, profoundly moved by, and see that loving Heavenly Father that we know in. God, thank you for your consistency. Thank you that you've always come to bring grace. Thank you, God, that that we have the privilege of hearing the gospel, speaking the gospel. Father, thank you for um, this word to us this summer. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, we would recognize that there's no person that we could possibly encounter who's too bad for this same message. It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of rebel you are, this is, we're able to say that there is a God who longs for us to return, to come Um, to relationship with him. So thank you that we can go with that truth. God, I pray that you would make us a repentant people and by doing so that you make us a free people, (laughs) a people who have great joy, burdens lifted, hope in you. I praise you for all of those truths that we could look into. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We're going to respond with two songs. Um, If you'll stand with us, if you have to go, um, feel free to go now, but we're just going to respond. God with two songs. So will you stand? And um, yeah, if you're feeling called to to just be with God and pray, um, we just want to encourage you to do so right now.
Yeah. 
Yes, Jesus, we thank you so much for being in this presence, Lord. Lord, we glean so much from being near you. Lord, we're just overwhelmed by, as we've gone through this series, to see the, the way that we treat you, Lord, the way we've rejected you, and how we wander, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for always drawing us back to you, Lord, and we want to lift you up, and we want you to be first in our lives, Lord, in this church and in this city, God. Pray that you just be with us as we go this week, Lord, and just uh, constantly remind us of your grace, Lord, of your forgiveness, Lord, of your love sickness for us, Lord. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.